Laura E. Adkins joins the show to talk about her essay, I'm a New York City Liberal and I Want a Gun, plus the latest congressional reaction to the July 4th shooting. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else. You'll also get early access to this podcast and the opportunity to appear on the show if you want to in one of our member segments or ask questions in one of our Q&A segments. Our last podcast was very popular. People really enjoyed the, the Q&A, a lot of good questions. So, uh, you know, head over, become a member today if, if you want to join in on that next time around. Uh, but this episode, we're going to be talking uh, about the Bruin decision and some of the fallout from it. And we have a guest who is directly impacted by the decision. Uh, Lauren Atkins, or Laura Atkins, sorry, is a uh, um, wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, entitled, uh, I'm a New York City liberal and I want a gun. Uh, so welcome to the show. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Obviously, you wrote this piece for the Times, but but uh, that's not your full-time job, right? Right, correct. I'm the opinion editor at The Forward, which is a Jewish publication. And I mostly cover anti-Semitism and Jewish life and things related to that. But um, I, I wrote this piece kind of in reaction to things that had nothing to do with my normal beat. So it was definitely a step outside of, of my usual writing. Sure, certainly. I think you have an interesting perspective, which is why I wanted to bring you on the show, both as somebody who's uh, going to be directly impacted by this ruling, but also somebody who, uh, you know, is, is uh, on the left side of the aisle. Right. And in terms of politics, I think uh, it's always interesting to to talk to gun owners or, or prospective gun owners, in your case, uh, from that uh, side of things, because uh, you're underrepresented oftentimes in gun media. So we try to try to bring on different voices here. But um, but yeah, can you tell us uh, uh, what made you want to write the, the piece for The Times? So a few weeks before the Bruin decision came down, um, I was in the middle of dealing with a, you know, personal situation that I'm sure we'll get into um, and was really starting to fear for my safety. And, you know, like like a lot of people, we don't always think deeply about things until they personally affect us. And I have a close friend who I know went through a lot of hurdles to get a gun when they were living in New Jersey, also for personal protection. And I reached out to her asking for any insight that she had into the process for getting a permit to carry a handgun in New York City. And she laughed at me and basically said, you know, unless you're a celebrity or wealthy and have access to a lawyer who can really advocate on your behalf, that's that's not going to be a fun process for you to go through. Um, yeah. So it honestly was only a few weeks before the Bruin decision came down that I was even interested in the outcome. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um... I think people don't realize how hard it is in in these, well, I guess formerly May issue states, uh, to actually obtain the permit. I think there's there's this idea that oh, all right, well, there's a permit, so you know, and it's it's about 
you just need to have a good reason, right, to to be able to get one. And most people would think, well, if I have, uh, you know, some some specific, uh, like I live in a bad neighborhood, or I want it for like self defense is a good reason, right, to to, mm-hmm. to carry a firearm. But those those don't qualify under uh, these statutes. And and really in practice, what you'll see is they often uh, just aren't issuing very many permits at all. And if they do get in in a lot of cases to People like, well, the former president Donald Trump had a permit in in New York, um, p- potentially because he had threats against his life, but also because potentially because he uh, was well connected there. There have been a number of scandals mm-hmm. uh, in the NYPD's licensing division regarding uh, basically bribery for handgun permits. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've seen that in California as well. There was a scheme to trade iPads for, for permits in uh in, a, in the Los Angeles uh, area, wow. I believe. And so, um, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. And, and what you'll see is very low number of permits compared to states that have uh, shall issue perm- permitting laws. You know, obviously, some states have no permits at all, but mm-hmm. most states have what New York is going to end up with some form of, which is shall issue. Where uh, So, um, for instance, uh, Maryland just changed their law to comply with the ruling. The governor announced that Maryland has, uh, according to the Crime Research Center, their Crime Prevention Research Center, they, they had uh, under twenty four thousand permits. Um, whereas Virginia, which is actually where I live, but uh, is a neighboring state that has shall issue permitting, uh, and they have uh, over three quarters of a million permits that are active. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Virginia is a little bit bigger population, about two million more people, but if, they, if Maryland was issuing at the same rate as as Virginia, they would have over half a million and they have mm. under 24,000. So it gives you some, just some numbers there to to uh, better explain. I mean, Florida, which is similar population to New York, they have about 1.2 million permits, whereas New mm. York, uh, there's a couple different estimates I've seen, but it ranges between uh, 35,000 and 80,000 permits active in the state. So uh, you know, you can see that the, that's the real impact of these laws. Mm-hmm. And, and well, so- the, the other really frustrating thing for me, I'm always a data person and I want to understand how, you know, this process works, what the approval process is like. And I there's no good available data in New York City um, without filing a freedom of information request. Even, you know, experts at John Jay College that works very closely on on issues of criminal justice pretty much said there's there's no good data on the approval rate or the exact factors that go into getting approved. So the the whole process is very opaque and bureaucratic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's that's very common with these those sorts of licensing programs. But uh, why don't we talk just real quick, um, as much as you're comfortable with sharing, you know, obviously you talked about it a bit in the New York Times piece, but mm-hmm. what was it uh, in particular that that uh, that made you want to, you know, obtain a gun and a, and a permit to carry? You know, obviously you had a, a personal issue with, uh, you know, former uh, boyfriend, uh, former significant mm-hmm. other who who was uh, the, that relationship ended poorly. And can you just give us a little more background on what what happened there? Sure. So I you know, like many people, ended a relationship over a year ago. And for several months of the past year, um, with increasing escalation, um, my former boyfriend started 
reaching out to family and friends, trying to get in touch with me, um, you know, sending very lengthy missives to family and friends. And at first it was kind of more annoying than alarming. Um, and in about April of this year, it got to a level as I, as I write in my piece, you know, he had gone through my social media and printed out photos of me with friends and had, you know, reached out to my family with what we felt was very alarming, um, messages. And I think we all kind of have a gut sense when things are starting to get dangerous and this person knows where I live. And this person also was getting served a temporary restraining order. Thankfully, I was out of the country when that happened, but I, I genuinely did not know how they would react. And I knew that they had a history of erratic behavior. And there's, there's always a, a balance, of course, between caution and paranoia. But I, you know, I'm a single woman, I live alone, and I was very concerned about what would happen. I, I think it ended up making it in the final version of the piece, but I had two NYPD officers from their domestic violence unit come to check up on me. I, I live in a walk-up apartment, like, like many single New Yorkers, and one of the officers was out of breath by the time they climbed up to my apartment, which, you know, is fine. But I was just thinking, you know, oh my God, if there's an actual emergency here, I'm going to be on my own at least for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, however long. The response time in New York City, it seems like from 911 calls is at least three, four minutes plus getting up the stairs. So it, it really hit me in that moment that, you know, I need to have a plan for how I would get out of a bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, so, so, I mean, you had a very serious, specific um, threat, you know, not necessarily a direct threat to your life in terms of uh, articulated and written down or, or spoken to you, but obviously mm -hmm. a dangerous situation that's developed to the point where you're even able to obtain a, a restraining order. Uh, but so why uh, did you attempt to, to uh, get a permit? Did you actually uh, file an application? Uh, with the NYPD or how, what, what was your the step there as far as uh, uh, the you know, gun permitting goes? So I had started the application. The other thing that your listeners should know is that in New York City, the application for a handgun license costs over $300. And, you know, that's that's a big chunk of change. So I started the application, reached out to the friend um, who I knew had gone through a similar process in New Jersey and when she told me that this would basically be throwing money into a process that was very unlikely to be approved, um, you know, I, I put it to the wayside and, and started, you know, dealing with other things. It's absolutely in my plan for this year. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like others, I, I want to understand exactly the way to go about it. Now that the Bruin decision has come down, hopefully it'll be a little more clear and easy, but it's it's still going to be... I want to make clear it's still going to be like a big process in yeah. in New York. Yeah. So is that that three hundred dollars fee? Is that I know in New York City they have uh, even stricter laws than the rest of the the state, mm -hmm. and they I believe they have a permit just to purchase the handgun first. Right? Mm -hmm. Is that three hundred dollars yeah, fee for that part, or is so that the, the permit carry? is for the application fee in general, whether you're applying just to have a handgun in your home or 
in public and okay. really public with an asterisk because they've you know been clarifying post Bruin decision that pretty much any space where you would be in public and feel unsafe is on the list of places that you're not yeah. going to be legally able yeah, we'll, to, to carry. We'll definitely, uh, <laughs> we'll, I definitely want to get your reaction to some of the, the yeah. post Bruin uh, reforms uh, that New York is, is trying to institute right now, but, um, or I guess they already, the, the law already passed, but, but, uh, but first I just want to, um, go through the, this process, right? The, uh, so you, uh, you know, you had this dangerous situation, um, did, first of all, when you got the restraining order, did mm-hmm. the police give you any sort of indication that that might be something that would qualify you to get a concealed carry permit in the city? So, New York City is very bureaucratic in many ways. And the way that's relevant here is that um, restraining orders, if it is a former partner, are actually not handled by the police department. They're handled by, um, a, it's called, I believe, the Family Justice Center is one of the organizations. So it's a, a totally separate um, system. It's through family court. It's not through the NYPD. Um, at all. So I, you know, anecdotally, I, I have seen some cases of people using a restraining order as a list that would, or as a reason rather, that would make them potentially eligible for these licenses. But again, it's not really clearly stated anywhere in the application or on the NYPD website, you know, what actually qualifies you. Right. Yeah, I guess because that's the whole idea is that it's completely subjective. Mm-hmm. And up to the issuing uh, official, really. Right. So, so I mean, I know a lot of defenses of these laws are that, well, you have to show you have a good reason. And so, mm-hmm. you know, something like a restraining order might, might be that good reason. Um, but really it is. And you're, uh, you're obviously been through the, started the process at the very least. It really is mm-hmm. completely subjective. They don't, they don't give you an indication that that restraining order is actually going to be able to qualify mm-hmm. you for the permit. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. There's I think there's a big difference between a burdensome process and a totally opaque process. And right. while it would be difficult, like there's there's a ton of steps also to get a restraining order. And mm-hmm. I think it's good that people can't just willy nilly, um, you know, infringe on other people's rights and ability to communicate with others. But sure. at the same time, there is a clearly delineated process in a way that just isn't the case here. Right, right. Yeah, and so that, uh, I mean, so ultimately that that's where you felt like, you know, going through this process, it was just so uh, unclear and unlikely, it's from what you heard mm-hmm. from friends that you would actually make it through. Uh, and that's why um, you, you uh, well, so when you, when, it, when you put in for the handgun permit, mm-hmm. uh, did you try, I don't I you're saying that the, the, the uh, the permit covers both owning the gun and, and potentially carrying it uh, on the same application. Is that how it so works? So you there? choose on the NYPD's clunky old website. Um, it's all handled mm-hmm. online now. You you basically choose when you start the application, whether you're applying just for um, having it in your home or carry. And there's you know several other options that mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with. Um, but you're, you're pretty yeah, much like on your own through that ones, process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, and so do they? Have you? Did they give you any sort of timetable for how long it might take to, you know, decide so, on your application? 
So I believe it's at minimum, the New York Police Department website states it's at minimum four months. Um, realistically, probably closer to a year, if not more. Is that another issue for you? I mean, it seems like you're in a pressing situation. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. As I mentioned in the piece, my stepfather um, actually sells guns for a part of his work. And I was you know, asking him how long a background check process, for example, usually takes. And at his particular place of work, it's they they have as long as they need to figure out, you know, if this person passes the background check. I know in some other places there's a time cutoff. Um, I so I that is all to say I understand the need for some time to make sure that someone applying for this is you know not going to be a threat to others. No, though we can never know for certain. Um, but at the same time, I you know my situation and a lot of other people's situations is pretty urgent. So a year is a long time to have to wait for this. I mean, I was very shaken also. About six blocks from me last weekend, a woman was shot at point blank range, um, pushing her infant in a stroller by a former partner that right. was known to her family as being a dangerous person. I don't know the details of whether or not her family, you know, was constantly badgering the NYPD to follow up on this individual. But I do know from experience that um, for better, for worse, it, it usually in these situations is the responsibility of the person who feels targeted to take action to make sure that it's addressed. So there's there's a lot of onus on I don't want to say the victim, but there's a lot of onus on the person feeling threatened or feeling a need to empower themselves um, to be super proactive in a way that that sometimes places the burden, at least in my eyes, on on the people most at risk of, of being harmed. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm interested here as well, because uh, obviously you work at a, a, a Jewish publication, and so you deal with anti-Semitism a lot uh, in, in your coverage, as you mentioned at the, the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, you're somebody who has that, that specific threat, um, or at least a, a specific reason to feel fear for your life mm -hmm. uh, at this moment in time right now. Right. And most people don't have something like that. They don't have a restraining order against an ex-partner or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there there are a lot of general threats to people's safety uh, that exist in uh, the public you know, public sphere. Right. Uh, right. And perhaps even elevated risks for members of minority groups uh, mm -hmm. you know, like Jewish people. And right. so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your take on um just that requirement in general, um, you know, and I know that, uh, for instance, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, they initially they had a total ban on concealed carry. Then that got struck down and they implemented uh, a New York, Maryland, California style may issue law for a while. Uh, and it really functioned in practice more like um, uh, some California counties where it's where it's may issue, but they'll give you a permit if just if you have these certain different documents, like a restraining order, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then that, that of course, got struck down uh, for because they would still deny anyone who had just a general desire for self-defense or mm -hmm. who if they lived in a uh, neighborhood with a high crime rate or or they were, you know, a member of a minority group that suffers hate crimes, you know, like right. Asian people or 
or Jewish people or so or, or black uh, Americans and so forth. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Is where do you come down on that distinction? Are you yeah. still wanting to see you know? Oh, it's really only people who have a very specific. Uh, threat that has documented police records behind it or cat, you know, or a, a restraining order behind it should be able to get these, these permits or not. So I was very struck, um, yesterday, actually, we at the forward have been covering the situation in Highland park really intensely because it's a heavily Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Obviously there was a devastating shooting over the weekends and, um, my colleague, spoke to a local synagogue in the area who that was next door to where the shooter grew up. And the head of security mentioned actually that the alleged shooter um, had kind of cased out the synagogue and had been inside of the synagogue. And the security official also mentioned that there were individuals in the congregation who were armed and who carried openly and You know, it's been a huge debate within the Jewish community over the past several years with anti-Semitism really on the rise. I'm sure Mm -hmm. for other minority communities as well. Um, There's, you know, culturally, most Jewish Americans are pretty liberal um, and there's a big reluctance to like guns are not really a part of Jewish American culture for most of us. And a lot of people really started to take seriously. I know. My synagogue had, you know, trainings on personal safety and there's been a ton of investment in security and a lot of people are feeling much more vulnerable and, you know, asking themselves whether or not caring is something that they should be doing. I, I really think that everyone should have the opportunity to safely defend themselves. And that's going to look different in different parts of the country. I personally would be uncomfortable with people in New York City who, you know, aren't well trained on how to use a handgun, you know, trying to go Rambo on defending their turf. But, um, you know, the reality is there were there were over I think there were over 50 people shot in New York City over the 4th of July weekend. And we have very tight gun laws here, but there's a ton of guns here. And I would much rather have a slightly larger percentage of the population really thinking about personal safety and security and, you know, looking into how to properly carry a firearm, than leaving it to, you know, just people with the worst of intentions being the ones armed. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly something you hear from a lot of uh, uh, carry advocates, and um, <coughs> sorry. Um, I mean, it sounds like you're uh, you're comfortable with the, 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 the a shall issue standard, where you know, uh, maybe uh, most states now actually have no permit uh, requirement mm-hmm. at all, as long as you uh, can legally own a firearm, you can legally carry it in 25. Uh, states, but the the rest, the remaining states all have uh, what's called shell issue, which requires mm-hmm. a background check and some level of training that varies from state to state. But uh, but as long as you pass those qualifications, you, you're able to obtain the rifle. There isn't this uh, special subjective standard beyond that for whether you have a, a good need or, you know, 
obviously some of the states that current that previously had the May issue laws are trying to um, uh, institute workarounds. Basically, um, you're seeing California, for instance, is removing its good reason clause and emphasizing its good moral character clause, which is kind mm -hmm. of uh, maybe may hard to tell a difference between the two. And I don't know how well that's going to stand up in in court. But um, speaking of which, uh, New York now. Um, so now, now Bruin has happened, right? The New York's law, the, the good reason clause has been struck down as unconstitutional. Um, but obviously, uh, that doesn't mean that now New York politicians are uh, are embracing, um, uh, you know, gun rights rhetoric and and repealing all of their gun laws, right? Instead, they're right. they're passing uh, different kinds of restrictions. They're trying to find the new, uh, I guess, boundary for what they can do constitutionally. And mm -hmm. so, one of the main things they're doing now is um, <clears throat> it, it seems they're. It, you're, you're going to be more likely to actually obtain the permit, but they've taken the approach of um, declaring a lot of places as sensitive places and off limits for guns, basically gun free mm -hmm. zones. Um, and they've taken the approach of this sort of a novel approach of haven't, no one else has tried this yet, but uh, they want to make all businesses off limits unless the business itself po posts a sign saying that you can carry there. Mm -hmm. um, which would, I think, in practice, is likely to make the most of the city off limits to carrying your firearm. Um, I think the governor, in fact, was quoted as saying uh, that maybe a few streets would you'd be able to carry, but that's about it. And I think they're banning it in the entirety of Times Square. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're they're just instituting a lot of these sort of restrictions. So. Uh, you're likely to be able to get the permit now, but you may not be able to carry your gun many places. Like the public transit, for instance, will be off limits under this new law as well. So uh, I don't know. Is there a practical difference in your mind now? Or like, how are you reacting to the, to these new um, restrictions? You know, it's it's frustrating that when it comes to the crime conversation in general in New York City, a lot of the loudest voices are the people genuinely and generally least affected. Um, I know, you know, during and now mid and after the pandemic, um, I ride the subway and it used to be super safe any time of day and night. And, you know, my friends and I, are not super comfortable anymore riding the subway after a certain time of day. And is that always reflected in the statistics that the NYPD releases? Not necessarily. But um, I think a lot of those either who are either refusing to believe that there's a significant problem of rising violence in the city um, are just people that have never genuinely been afraid in the city and are, are very insulated from what's happening. Um, when you scroll through the pictures of the victims' families from the 50 people shot in New York City, um, most of them live in areas that are heavily minority communities, are poorer sections of the city. And the fact that, you know, this, this permit process, I have the resources financially to apply for it. I have the time to fill out this lengthy application and 
I, again, I don't know the circumstances of the woman who was killed a few blocks from me last weekend, but I just keep thinking about her, you know, did she have the resources to get a gun if she had wanted to? Was she able to go through all of this red tape if she had wanted to? It, it takes a lot of time and resources to secure yourself in the city. And, you know, those who live in nice neighborhoods are much more insulated by default. So I sometimes get frustrated when I speak to people who, you know, grew up in a, in a wealthy area of the country and have never, you know, lived somewhere where, for example, the police take 10 to 15 minutes or more to come and you really are on your own if there's an emergency situation or have never lived in a building where you need to make sure that no one's behind you when you open the front door. And I, I certainly understand why people who have not been around guns um, are afraid of them. I, I think that's very real. And I certainly don't think that people who are skeptical of more guns on the streets, even with responsible holders, I don't, I don't think that they have bad reasons for making the points that they do. But I, I do feel that the conversation is a little bit detached from the experience of, of the most vulnerable people in this city. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good point. This was actually a uh, one of the points raised in um, a brief to the court from New York public defenders that essentially argued that for uh, young black men in New York City, there is no such thing as the Second Amendment. They just don't have mm. Second Amendment rights because of the reasons you just laid out there. It's exceedingly difficult to actually legally obtain a firearm and mm -hmm. carry it in New York. And, and so people who live in more dangerous areas, even if they aren't criminals themselves, they, they, you know, they just interested in protecting themselves. Um, it's mm -hmm. basically impossible to do that legally. Uh, and so many will choose to violate the law rather than risk, you know, getting uh, killed by somebody else who mm -hmm. doesn't care about those laws. Right. Right. Uh, in the first place. And so, um, you know, you've seen the same, it's, it's interesting because stop and frisk was very controversial, right? Mm -hmm. But Stop and Frisk was enforcing this gun law. It was enforcing mm -hmm. uh, the, the licensing laws for having handguns in New York City. That's why they were frisking people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was the main point, you know, drugs and, and guns. But often people were arrested for just having a firearm, not having uh, the, the police didn't have any evidence that they uh, were looking to commit any cr other crimes with the gun other than just having it on them. And so, yeah, I, I do think that that is uh, a section of the, the story that often gets uh, left aside, uh, even when we're discussing uh, disparate outcomes of, of uh, criminal justice enforcement in the United States. Gun laws mm -hmm. are often left off that that list of uh, of, of talking points. So mm -hmm. um, it, it's yeah, I think it's a legitimate point. But uh, but real quick here, just at the the little bit of time we got left, uh, I do want to. So you haven't actually. Uh, purchased any uh, firearms yet, right? Correct. But uh, so, what are uh, I'm, I'm interested as somebody who's who's looking to to make this their first purchase? Uh, you know, what what are your uh, how is that going for you? I know you've you've, you've uh, been shooting a couple of times. You talked mm -hmm. about that on on your social media. Um, 
what uh, how's that process going? What's it been like looking for for the right firearm for you? So I am very lucky because again, my stepfather does sell guns as a part of his work and is super knowledgeable. Um, I grew up hunting with my stepdad, but I've never really handled handguns. It was always rifles. Mm -hmm. um, so I am going to approach this process um, with a very open mind in terms of what gun I actually get. But I think like the majority of women, I'm looking for, you know, something that I can handle confidently and easily that I can learn how to make second nature in case, you know, God forbid I need to use it. And, sure. um, you know, just based on the accessibility of guns here, I, you know, I honestly wouldn't even know where to go to buy a gun in New York. I, I would probably try out models the next time. I'm at home in Missouri and, you know, be somewhere where that, you know, that's another obstacle here is in New York City, there's not exactly a culture of a lot of people who are interested in, you know, sportsmanship and marksmanship and mm -hmm. safely training people to handle a handgun. So that is that's also something that is very important to me to be a part of this process. So as much as getting the gun itself will hopefully provide a little sense of relief. I think also, you know, finding the resources to be able to safely handle it and confidently handle it and have others to support is, is another part of this process. Yeah, well, I, I know that we have listeners up in New York, so uh, hopefully some of them maybe can reach out to you and, and offer Great. some help on that front. Um, obviously, there's there are uh, uh, a number of advocacy groups that operate up there. Um, I think the Liberal Gun Club has has a, mm -hmm. a chapter in New York. Uh, they might be a fit for you, uh, given you know just based off the the title of the piece, right? Right. That you identify as a liberal, so um, there you're not the only liberal who owns fire wants to own firearms or owns firearms in the United States. That's for sure. Um, and then, of course, there are a number of shooting links for women in particular. But but you know, there's lots of just general shooting clubs too that exist out there. I think the city makes it more difficult to open ranges so there aren't a huge variety of them but they do exist mm -hmm. um unlike in washington dc where you have to to go outside the city to to get to a shooting range but um but yeah no i mean that's that's exciting i think it's uh i i think hopefully some of our readers maybe uh some of our listeners can can uh offer you uh, support on that front um i'm always happy to help uh in whatever way i can as well but uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in as well in the reaction that you're seeing from publishing this op-ed. I mean, it's the New York Times. It's uh, uh, you're identifying yourself as a liberal who wants a gun. That's not a super common thing to see in the mm -hmm. op-ed pages of the New York Times. So what uh, what have people been saying to you? So I <laughs> they always say not to read the comments when you publish something that's personal. <laughs> I never listen to that advice for better, for worse. And I've actually been pleasantly surprised. There have, of course, been reactions. Um, you know, people, I got one that said, you're making up your story. I got a few that, you know, said, you're much less safe with a gun than without a gun. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm fine for people to dispute the data. That's not a big deal. Um, or it, I don't take it personally, rather. Sure. But I have had an astonishing number of 
you know, both close friends and just acquaintances, um, many of whom are also pretty liberal, um, just say like, wow, you made me think about this in a new way. Didn't know you were experiencing this. And I've never I've never thought of this aspect of of this conversation. So mm. overall, you know, I, I worked with an amazing editor who really pushed me to add a lot of the the data to anchor my argument beyond just my personal experience. And sure. yeah, overall, I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think people, uh, if they're not well-versed in how these licensing laws work in practice, they, they sound reasonable on the face of them, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, sure. You should need a good reason to carry a gun, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem comes in what, uh, what that standard means in practice, which is basically right, exactly. that, that nobody gets uh, given th this approval because, uh, you know, it's a completely subjective judgment as to whether or not you have a good reason to mm -hmm. need to carry a firearm. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people would think, well, uh, being uh, being Jewish and living in, in a city where there are often anti-Semitic attacks would be a good reason or uh, being a single woman, uh, mm -hmm. even without, uh, everything else could be a good reason why you would need to, a gun to defend yourself, uh, mm -hmm. against an aggressor in, in New York city. Uh, but, but that's not how these things work in real life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to, uh, to explain that and to have people understand and to see real world examples of, of how it impacts people, uh, in, <laughs> in real life. So. Uh, really yeah. appreciate you you coming on and, and sharing uh, your perspective and your story. I, th I think uh, that uh, a lot of our listeners will really enjoy it. So I really appreciate it. Uh, where, where can people find more of your work, by the way? So all of my writing is um, available on my website, which is just myname.com. Um, my publication is forward, like the direction.com, where I'm the opinion editor and I hang out on Twitter. So and my direct messages are open for better or worse. So <laughs> I think that's how we connected. I'm, yes. I'm always happy to speak to people um, on there as well. Well, you've been wonderful. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. So, uh, and hopefully maybe we could have you back on again when you are actually able to, uh, you know, finish the process of, of obtaining your gun and getting your permit. And we can see, you know, how these, how these changes in law affected that process is, you know, how's it all going from somebody who actually has gone through it? Great. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks awesome. for having me. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of the week again. We're here to do the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman and joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you today, Steve? I'm doing all right. Uh, we're filming this out of order. So this is actually the last part of the podcast, but I'm filming it uh, before we <laughs> before I filmed the main interview. So it's like a time warp thing going on. Sure. Uh, in fact, I might have a haircut. I don't know. We'll see if I have time to do that. That'll be fun. Complete outfit uh, change. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like a, you know, a movie where they, they denote the time change by having the, the characters change their hair and, and, and outfits. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. I'm doing good though. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah. Can't complain. Got some uh, big news in uh, in the gun world this week. Obviously, yeah. there was a, a a very tragic mass shooting yeah, over the holiday sure. weekend in um, Highland Park. 
which of course, as a lot of these shootings tend to do, sort of reignited the discussion of gun politics again. Mm-hmm. And the timing of that is very interesting just because we're coming off of a big federal gun control legislation, the first in many, many years. And it's already reignited new conversations. And we have a story from Eric Eva, uh, one of our interns here. Uh, if you want to dive into a little bit more of the details there. Yeah. So the story is basically just the Democratic reaction to the July 4th shooting, uh, which is so along the lines of what you might expect. You know, that uh, they basically say that the, the bipartisan gun bill was um, a good start, uh, but clearly insufficient um, in the face of the, you know, these, this new shooting, which is, you know, essentially what uh, a lot of gun rights uh, folks had predicted would be the case. Uh, and to be fair to Democrats, they all along, many of them were saying that this wasn't the end goal for them. It doesn't have most of their top priorities in it, like an assault weapons ban or, or, you know, magazine bans or universal background checks or policies of that nature. It obviously focused more on, you know, funding for red flag laws, which Illinois already has one, but uh, that wasn't used in this case. Again, there's sort of uh, another unfortunate failure because there were a lot of red flags in this case, just like in Buffalo, but um, it wasn't uh, something that people followed up on, unfortunately. And it sort of seems like the family went the opposite direction and then um, helped this, this person obtain uh, firearms after they had made a series of, of threats. But uh, regardless, uh, you know, the bill focused on trying to prevent um, people who have domestic violence history towards their dating partners or who have a juvenile criminal record uh, from getting guns. So this is a different approach than what most Democrats want. And so all along they were saying this was sort of the first step. Um, and, and now uh, the next significant mass shooting that we've seen, uh, they're now calling for more gun control, of course. Uh, so for instance, uh, the president himself, uh, president Joe Biden said, I recently signed the first major bipartisan gun reform legislation in almost 30 years into law, which includes actions that will save lives, but there's much more work to do. And I'm not going to give up fighting the epidemic of gun violence. Um, Tammy Duckworth, uh, said, uh, you know, last month, Congress provided, approved that bipartisan gun compromises on gun safety are possible. Today proved that we can't stop there. Um, you know, Senator Murphy, who is one of the key negotiators in the bipartisan gun deal, he said, uh, we have broken the back of the gun lobby. We now have made possible changes in our gun laws that can keep our communities safer. Today's reminder that we still have a long road to travel. So, you know, he called it just the beginning. And obviously that's in line with what a lot of the critiques from, from gun rights advocates were at the time, which is that as soon as there's another shooting, there would just be, um, you know, calls for new legislation. Uh, and so that's that's what we're seeing. Uh, but um, whether that actually materializes into new legislation is another question, of course. Right. Um, so we haven't seen that yet. Uh, it's, it, most of these calls are for assault weapons bans. Right. So um, that seems very unlikely. I was going to say, I think the odds of that are slim to none because we're getting ever closer to what's shaping up to be a pretty contentious midterms, especially one where they predict to be a fairly sizable red wave because it is, you know, an off year with a Democrat in the White House, Mm -hmm. um, plus some things in the economy are pointing to a potential big win for Republicans. seems like an assault weapons ban. We've already uh, we've covered 
pretty recently here, just the way the politics of assault weapons bans have been shaping up lately makes that already kind of unlikely. Yeah. Uh, but with those electoral factors, man, I just don't, I don't know if I see a real big push after all the political capital that was spent just getting this last bipartisan bill across the finish line. Yeah, um, so. you know, and, and it gets to the point where you, uh, I mean, that was always the question with the previous bill, the political calculation, who is this, uh, who's this for? Like, who, who's this benefiting in terms of the politics of it? Right. Um, because as soon as there's another mass shooting, it's just going to appear like uh, a half measure to a lot of the people who want more gun control, right? Sure. And it's going to appear like a betrayal to the people who don't want more gun control. So, uh, you know, I, I guess the calculation was to try and hit that sort of uh, middle zone of people who might generally favor stricter gun laws in some circumstances, but aren't uh, really gun control activists necessarily, uh, and they aren't gun rights activists either. Uh, so uh, I guess the cool question is like, if, if you keep having mass shootings like this, if it doesn't actually produce a noticeable decrease in either mass shootings or uh, violent crime generally, gun crime generally, is that going to be a, a political winner for any of the people involved? I mean, certainly it, it's probably a bigger question for the Republicans who passed it um, because they're the ones taking more of a political risk, I would imagine. You know, the Democrats can say, as they're saying now, that, well, it's a start. You know, it's something that we got done, at least. But we want to do much more, um, even if there's no, it doesn't seem to be any bill materializing right now. I've talked to several sources, uh, Republican sources on the Hill, and and they don't see appetite for a new gun bill at this point. Right. Um, you know, we, we're planning to do a follow-up piece uh, with on the Republicans' reactions. There haven't been a lot of public reactions that, at least not in type that talk about legislation, right? So... Uh, it seems unlikely that you're going to get another bipartisan gun bill through before the midterms happen, yeah. uh, especially in the Senate. Yeah. And especially because the things that would be in a new bill are going to be more controversial. Absolutely. Uh, much more controversial. I would imagine like, like an assault weapons ban is right. far more controversial than what's in the current, uh, the current, the law that was just signed uh, as, as much as there's, Plenty of things in there that are controversial an assault weapons ban or universal background checks is those are the big ticket items. And um, I think, you know, it is fair to I think it's worth noting and it's only fair to point out that this shooting took place in Illinois, where universal background checks are law of the land. There's mm -hmm. an ID, a FOID per purchasing permit law. Yeah, There's an assault weapons owner, ban. Firearm owner identification card, which is basically a, a permit to purchase guns. Right. And there's an assault weapons ban in the town where this happened. There's a high capacity yes. magazine ban in the town where this happened. And by all accounts that we've seen in reporting so far, he obtained this gun legally somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just all these different, basically all the, the legislative items on the wish list that are being called for right now were already the law of the land in the shooting, I think, which just makes the political dynamics here all the more uh, disfavorable to Democrats getting an actual bill because Republicans can just say, look, we are, look what happened here in Illinois. These, your, your yeah. proposals didn't work. Um, so the only problem with that is, uh, 
you could have made the same argument about the bill that did pass because none of the things in that bill would have had any effect on the Evalde shooting sure. uh, that it was responding to. Um, you know, may, maybe in it, it's vaguely related in some ways because of the age of the shooter and some of these reforms targeted people by their age, but but none of them, it appears, would have prevented him from buying a gun. Sure. Um, you know, with the, and that's the that's the other problem. Like, yeah, the red flag law failed in the in Illinois, and their Floyd card system failed to stop this shooter from getting guns. But that's primarily because people didn't use those systems. Now, maybe the police should have um, done something. You know, he had a 2019 incident where he was he had threatened to kill his family, and he had his knives confiscated, I guess. And then later on, his father co-signed on his Floyd card. For minors, uh, you know, or for anyone, sorry, not minors, anyone under 21 uh, in Illinois, you have to have a co-signer for the, the period where you're under 21. But he didn't commit the shooting until he was 22. Right. So this was years later. And it's unclear uh, outside of uh, an actual conviction or involuntary commitment, um, which both are potentially could have happened. He was uh, he had the police have been called for two different incidents from what's been reported. Uh, one was uh, uh, suicidal ideation, um, and so perhaps he could have been involuntarily committed over that, although that's obviously not a super common response to somebody having suicidal thoughts. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know how realistic that is. But then later, he was, they were called back because he had threatened to kill his family. Um, and obviously, he was doing a lot of things in his uh, social media presence. Uh, including, you know, some, you know this, he had a, a music career uh, where he alluded to shootings and being killed by the police and school shootings. And so, you know, there there obviously are red flags in the history of the shooter. But again, with a lot of these, as with a lot of these shooters, including Uvalde, had had red flags as well. I think he had their reports about him uh, threatening women and. Uh, you know, animal abuse, but these things are all potential disqualifiers if they're followed up on. Right. And oftentimes they're not. And that's where you get into the real problems. Uh, and, and it can be hard for a family, I'm sure, with somebody who's having mental health struggles to, uh, you know, take the those necessary steps because I'm sure they're hoping that there's a less severe path to solving the problem. Right. Um, and, uh, so it's, I don't want to underplay how difficult it is to actually stop these, uh, these sorts of attacks, uh, in real life. Uh, you know, a lot of this is hindsight, uh, being pretty clear when you pile up a lot of things over years, but, um, that's one of the, weaknesses of a red flag system or involuntary commitment or even, you know, a system based on convictions uh, for for prohibiting people from purchasing guns. Because if you never, you might have an incident that in hindsight, it's clear was a red flag and, a, you know, something that should have been done about it. But at the time, might have, you know, a lot of people are, you know, Buffalo shooters, another one where he was, yeah. uh, taken by police after making, you know, a threat while at school um, or, you know, it, and it wasn't necessarily a specific threat. It was a generalized threat um, of violence and he was taken for a mental health evaluation. And apparently 
was cleared uh, was not, and for whatever reason that didn't, uh, they're still unclear on why that didn't constitute an involuntary commitment. I guess it's a different legal process they were using uh, for that evaluation. But, um, you know, the goal in those situations is usually not to put somebody behind bars or uh, try to permanently affect their life. Usually the goal is to try and help them and rehabilitate them. And, and so that's why you'll see people slip through the cracks like this. Um, and, and it's much more infuriating in hindsight, knowing what they did, right. what they went on to do. Um, but a lot of most people don't go on to do those sorts of things. And so um, it, it's hard. It's very hard to prevent these sort of things. We had a whole podcast a while back with uh, Professor James Allen Fox, who tracks uh, mass shootings for the Associated Press. And we talked through uh, a lot of different proposals and their strengths and weaknesses. That's the reality of all these things is there's there's strengths and weaknesses to all policy positions that you put out there for how to stop this, these sorts of events, which do remain statistically very rare as much as they are. Um, obviously, any single incident is going to be too, too, too many. Nobody wants any of these to happen ever. The question is, how do you stop them? And that's where you get into a lot of trade-offs, right. um, whether it's with the effectiveness of the policy or the burden on large swaths of people to try and prevent one person from doing something or a small, a, few, a tiny percentage of people from doing something. That, that's the issues you face here. But anyway, I've gotten us a little bit off track um, with that. Uh, so the... I don't I don't believe there's any, there's no bill that's floating around yet. All we've really heard as far as specifics of what Democrats want are, are basically an assault weapons ban. That's right. what in the story, uh, the specific policy that's been touched on by some of these Democrats. Right. Particularly uh, Illinois Democrats. And, and, you know, like we said, just the way that this all works out and, and the fact that in, in this shooting, like the last few shootings you rattled off, there were missed opportunities to use existing laws. I think this just all works in the favor of, of those that don't want to see more legislation. And I think we are unlikely to see a formal bill actually advanced. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, it's just, I mean, the Senate doesn't move that fast on this right. kind of stuff, especially when they just passed the reform. Uh, I think most of them would argue that they want to see how that plays out and that, uh, that they all understand it wouldn't stop every single mass shooting. The whole, the hope or their goal was to, decrease the number and try to have some effect with a policy that doesn't go um, as far as in the restrictions in into restrictions as perhaps it could have, um, you know, this is a compromise. This is something where they had, they had to find some common ground, even though they couldn't, they couldn't get a majority of Republicans to back it, but uh, they did get 15, which is quite a lot. And it's actually, they only got 14 in the house, which is fascinating. Um, but either way, it, it seems very unlikely that they're going to immediately go back to that. Well, uh, in even with, uh, you know, another mass shooting occurring. No, I think that's right. But, um, and look, I mean, sorry, go, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. After you. <laughs> um, uh, it's like, we're stuck at a door. Yeah. Uh, go, go first. Um, no, I was just going to say, like, uh, we're at, uh, there have been seven 
of these uh, mass shootings this year, according to the Mother Jones Tracker, which uh, you know is, is three or more dead with uh, uh, an element of randomness to the attack in public. Um, you know, so no, no gang-related shootings right. or or other um, shootings of that nature. Yeah, a lot, actually, most most mass shootings where somebody kills three or more people, uh, unfortunately, is are events where somebody murders their whole family in their own home. Um, so it's obviously a different problem, but that doesn't uh, get tracked in these, uh, in the Mother Jones counts. And it also does, the, most of the media counts are three or more people shot or three or four, depends on which account you're looking at. But uh, so that's obviously a much broader um, statistic that incorporates all sorts of different kinds of shootings. Most of them are gang-related shootings yeah. uh, or crime-related in some way, you know, drugs or gangs or what, what have you. Um, but the Mother Jones one, I think, is a, is a much better metric. It gets you down to the what um, what most people would probably consider a mass right. shooting in, in, you know, the average person's mind, which is something similar to Uvalde or um, Buffalo or, or this shooting in, in Illinois. Uh, and so there have been seven of those this year, which really puts us back on track with with what we've been seeing the, the pre-pandemic years, um, you know, much higher than back in the, you know, 80s or, or 90s. But, um, you know, we're likely to see probably another four or five uh, before the end of this year, unfortunately, if, if, if the averages keep and it seems like we're getting back to what is unfortunately a normal pace for these events um uh in recent uh in like the last decade or so taking out the pan there were only two in 2020 uh but i don't think our solution to mass shootings is going to be locking everything yeah. down in their homes um so to find other ways of preventing these attacks uh, but it was it's one of those sad things that came back once the pandemic um alleviated and people were gathering in crowds again and you had um we have not solved the issue clearly right. um, but yes it, you're likely to see renewed calls for new gun control after mass shootings going forward i think you're unlikely to see another federal bill before the midterms. Okay. I think that's right, though. But if there is a bill or any other big gun news, uh, where can they go, Steve, to find out about that? Yes, you can head to thereload.com. We will, of course, be covering it in a sober, serious way, uh, trying to give you the best insight possible into what's going on um, in D.C. with gun laws and across the country as well. Um, but, yeah, that's that's all we've got for this week. Uh, if you want to head over and check out our membership options, you should do that today over at thereload.com. If you join, you will get uh, exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and news stories that you cannot find anywhere else on the planet. I promise you that. Uh, you'll also get this podcast a day early. You'll get the opportunity to appear on the podcast or ask questions on our next Q&A. Uh, those Q&A episodes are very popular, so... Um, you know, if you want to be the person asking the questions, uh, and we've had, some, uh, as Jake said last episode, we had some very smart, very intelligent questions, and hopefully we did a good job in trying to respond to them all. But, uh, you know, 
join today and you can uh, ask a question in one of the in the next one we do so uh but that's it for now we will see you guys next week